0: Hello there, welcome to this episode of Double Jeopardy, the law and politics podcast with me, uh, Ken MacDonald, I'm a barrister at Matrix Chambers uh, and a former director of public prosecutions. And with me, Tim Owen, I'm also a barrister
1: at Matrix Chambers, specialising in public law, crime and human rights
0: law. And Tim and I are delighted um, uh, on this episode to be joined by Alex Chalk, KC, a Secretary of State for Justice and Lord Chancellor. Alex was born in Cheltenham in 1976, he went to Winchester College, he read modern history at Oxford, and he was called to the bar in 2001, joining 6KBW College Hill, the very highly regarded uh, criminal and regulatory set of chambers uh, in London. He practiced in terrorism, serious crime, fraud. Homicide. I have to say, this this practice sounds very familiar to me. It <laughs> seems to be pretty close to. I think you instructed me, Ken, on a, a few occasions. <laughs> I think I, I think I think I did, but I, I I had a very similar practice myself at the bar. He was described in the directories, amongst other things, as quote phenomenally bright, um, unquote, uh, which is a good thing in a in a Lord Chancellor. Obviously, for many for many years, Alex was a Conservative councillor in in Fulham. Uh, In 2015, he was elected as Conservative MP for his town of birth, Cheltenham. Um, In 2015 to 2019, he was a member of the House of Commons Justice Select Committee. In 2021, he became Prisons Minister and later that year, Solicitor General. And he was notable during his period of office for the number of unduly lenient sentences uh, he brought before the Court of Appeal, winning, I think, 38 cases, no less than 38 cases in his first eight months. And in April 2023, he became Secretary of State for Justice uh, and Lord Chancellor. Alex, welcome to Double Jeopardy. Thank you very much. It's a real
1: pleasure to join you. Yes, uh, thank you very much, Alex. I I thought I might begin by reminding you of a rather nice article by Danny Finkelstein a few months ago, in which he said that uh, in 2018, he was appearing at the Cheltenham literature festival when he was informed that the rest of the panel he was expecting weren't able to come so they put up the services of the local mp and danny said they didn't fill me with hope he was both very junior as a parliamentary private secretary bound to follow the government line a combination almost certain to be supremely tedious little more than an hour later i was feeling relieved and also a bit embarrassed my dread had been entirely unwarranted my feelings about the substitute ungenerous because the local mp Put in one of the best performances I'd witnessed on a panel, and amongst other things, what Danny said is that you were clever, articulate, and above all, frank about his views.
2: Well, oh, that you really set me up now. So I'm. I know. Well, yeah, we this, have. Well, I have to say that is now Danny Finkelstein and Chambers and Partners who uh, have written something that's totally overwritten about uh, my. my <laughs> and I'm just going to disappoint you all, right? But that's very kind. Thank you. Frank, Frank, about your views. Yeah, Alex. we're
0: going to have a lot of frank yeah, views well. here.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Do you know I've got I've got my special advisors here. We've got a series of um, hand signals in case I start to become too frank. So uh, yeah, they'll be throw raining them, me. in. Throw them
0: out of the room, Alex. And and um <laughs> um, we we're we hoping at some point that you're going to come back to the bar, but we'll see see what the next year or so brings. C- can we we start with a f- normally with a few few personal questions? We're going to keep this quite short because we want to get to the nitty sure. gritty. But but, but in a very few words, what was it about the law that that attracted you?
2: Uh, well, look, I mean, it's fun In the summer of my second year, I was lucky enough at uh, universities you referred to to go and try out various things. I, I did a lot of work experience. I thought for a long time I wanted to be a diplomat, actually, I wanted to join the SCDO. And then I did too many pupilages. I did one at 20 Essex Street, which you know, is known as a commercial set. And then I did one at 18 Red Line Court, which, is you know, is also a very uh, good criminal set. And I was absolutely hooked. I think that, you know, there is, there is little substitute for. Advocating on behalf of someone you think is perhaps less able to speak convincingly and coherently for themselves, and to advance their interests, and it, it, I was just completely bitten by bitten by the bug on that, and I decided that was the
1: future for me. And, and obviously, you moved into politics. Um, uh, 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 who was who would you say was the biggest political influence on you?
2: What a great question! Um, do you know that I have to say, in terms of political influences, probably one of my biggest influences actually. Not a British politician. I, 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 am I going to be oversharing here again, Carl? I was, uh, is um, is of uh, of Kennedy and the reason why uh, President Kennedy was because at a time of acute pressure, he showed calmness and judgment at a time when he had people breathing in his ear, Curtis LeMay from Strategic Air Command saying, "You know what you want to be doing is going and bombing Cuba." He said, "No, that's not what I'm going to do," and he came up with this ingenious. A quarantine policy, and I just remember thinking that it's it's that ability to keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. To uh, probably slightly misquote Kipling, uh, that that I found I found an inspiration. But the truth is, the bigger inspiration was one of circumstance. You mentioned my hometown of Cheltenham is to is to put yourself amongst the problems of your community and just to play a small part in resolving them, and without you know, boring your listeners, except those who live in Cheltenham, of which I hope there are many. Um but but you know, there are things you can do. You know, there are things you can do to try to get investment uh for, you know, I, we've got things going on a cyber park, which is going to provide fantastic opportunities close to home for people to go as far as their talents will take them. You know, everyone agrees on these things, but as an NP, you can actually move the dial and, and bring investment that makes a difference. So it's a combination of individuals, but really of circumstance and my hometown.
0: Okay, well, we know we know you're up for re-election. Um, well, no, that that next
2: wasn't year the, that wasn't a plug. That wasn't a plug. <laughs> no. it, it, it happens to be the truth. So there you go.
0: Let Let's get Let's get on directly then to what you are actually doing um, in politics, which at the moment is is quite a lot. We had the King's Speech debate in the House of Lords yeah. last night, to which I uh, contributed, and we had we had. Um, Ian Burnett, Lord Lord Burnett, the former Chief just, Justice, Lord Chief Justice, uh, maiden speech on on the rule of law, which was was very very impressive. But but we were some of us were very interested, and I was very interested in in what what you're doing around sentencing, and this was a uh, quite a quite a big deal in the the King's speech. So there there are two angles to this. One is what I think is actually um, I'm not trying to overflatter you here, but quite a courageous move on shorter sentences, which is to say a presumption that sentences under 12 months. Should be suspended. I think this is long overdue, and I think it's good that it's coming from a conservative government. It's a bit of a sort of Nixon in China mo- moment, and more likely to to get to get through. I think so. That, that we have that on the one hand. On the other hand, we have um, what some people have described as red meat, which is the creating space between you and the opposition in time for the next general election. Which is removal of remission uh, in rape cases um, and in serious sex cases, and many, many more whole life sentences for. Somewhat lesser, they're all terribly, terribly serious, but somewhat lesser forms of murder than 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 it's generally been reserved for. So, could you say something about this? I mean, I'm I'm very sympathetic to the shorter sentences, a little less sympathetic to you removing remission, which I think is a slippery slope.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, well um, first of all, just to just to pick up the point about Lord Burnett, I, I haven't had a chance to pick uh, to read what he said, but he did write to me in a way that was sort of characteristic as he was winding up his. Term in office, he still found the time to write the most brilliant letter about, with his reflections on how he thought uh, the criminal justice system could conveniently be uh, reformed, and it it was such a sort of powerful series of suggestions that, if I'm fortunate enough to be re-elected, that I'll certainly be giving very careful consideration to. But put, putting that to one side, so short sentences. I think it's just worth me saying, if I can, that this hasn't emerged from a clear blue sky. These are things that I've been thinking about for some time, and indeed. After I stood down as Solicitor General uh, from the Boris Johnson government last July at party conference, I was speaking at a justice event about precisely these sorts of things. And incidentally, the whole motivating factor behind it is not just some sort of instinctive liberal view as to what one should do. It's, It's about what works. And the fact is, with short sentences, you're driving a freight train through someone's life. You destroy their reputation. You destroy their ability very often to work, family relationships, mental health, and so on. And the problem is they're not then in custody for long enough for the process to begin to rebuild their ability to become a contributing member of society and as i said that's borne out by the statistics under 12 months more than 50 percent chance of reoffending but uh, but if on the other hand you have a suspended sentence order with onerous requirements and so on then it's about 22 or 24 percent. so that's the point. but the other point i know you know this but it's worth just emphasizing is we now are in a much better place in terms of technology and that technology can tailor a sophisticated sentence which does the punishment because punishment is required. So you can now have COVID style curfews of up to 20 hours on the weekend. So you really make a mess of someone's weekend, fair enough. But you can also insist that they go from home to work during the week to hold down that job. And they go from home to that anger management course or or whatever it is. So technology allows us to do that. Other countries have done it in a, in a sophisticated way. And it is born from an instinct to reduce reoffending. So to the point then, the second point, the, the stuff that you're less um, excited about I mean the whole life orders it's worth reflecting on um that I mean f- first of all we of course make no apology for wanting to lock up those serious offenders for longer and and so on and it is a it is a fact that if you look at the really dreadful case for example Sarah Everard where there was uh, murder which had been uh, foreshadowed by serious sexual offense. And he, was, and, and, he, and he was a police officer, and he was a police. So that's true. And in in that case, there was a whole life order that was required. But I, I I do think that if we are to do the important things that I I want to do on short sentences, it is important to take the country and indeed Parliament with us. And so it I, and is I a
0: trade. So it is a trade off. It is a trade.
2: Well, I wouldn't say it's a trade off, but I think it's an overall package which I want to see command public confidence. I think that's probably as, as um as far as I can put it. Can I just draw your attention, Alex, to... It's in the
1: number 10 briefing on the King's speech. It contains this this paragraph, which I just wonder if you actually believe this to be true. It says, um, For too long, the justice system has been too lenient and left victims feeling hollow, even when perpetrators are caught. Uh, So with the King's speech, we're going to protect victims and keep people safe. I mean, do you really believe that for too long, and if so, for how long, our justice system has been too lenient. I mean, we have the longest sentences practically in Europe. We have one of the highest prison populations. Yeah, I mean, that's just, it's just not true. Isn't that just feeding into this sort of performative tabloid agenda? I just wonder if you really believe we have been too
2: lenient for too long. The first thing I absolutely accept is that we do have robust uh, sentences in this country. Of course, the the courts, you hardly need me to tell you or your listeners, courts are entirely independent and they make their decisions, but we do have robust uh, sentences. And I think it's also worth reflecting that you will know when you're in court and sometimes you have that moment where the defendant's being convicted and the judge says to the jury, well, do you know what? I, I think I'm going to proceed to sentence now. So members of the jury, if you just want to wait there for a moment, and then, of course, the jury hear the plea in mitigation, they hear about this person's background, and then the sentence gets handed down, and it is a very significant one. You suddenly see the ash On the jury's faces, yeah. On, jury's, yeah. on the jury's faces, because you know the sentences are robust. They're um, yeah, very long. So uh, that, is, that is true. That having been said, when you sit in this seat... And you speak to victims of crime, So you speak to the family of Zara Alina, for example. You speak to those who've been affected by the Lucy Letby case or others. And there are some aspects of the criminal justice system, particularly for those most serious serious cases, where there is a risk of disconnect between what the public perceive and the actuality. So for example, the fact that in 2010 rapists uh, would get out at the halfway marks if you are given eight years and you only serve four that w- that was an issue of, of disquiet now you're right to say respectfully that in, in the overall context is nonetheless our sentences are significant but there wasn't necessarily a there isn't always necessarily a particularly um uh, how can I put it wholesale acceptance of issues such as, uh, early-release provisions. So I, I, I do think we have to try to take the public with us. I am doing what I think is ambitious in respect of short sentences, but that does have to form part of a package uh, which can give the British people uh, confidence that uh, justice is being done. And as incidentally, the final point on that is you know, giving the judges additional power to ensure that people come into court for sentence. These sorts of things have totemic significance uh, if people are seen to be cocking a snook at Parliament, and the final point is, of course, that risks under-
0: undermining the rule of law. I mean, the question is, wh- the question is whether the significance in a, in, in, a, in a policy like that is any more than totally. But, but, but Alex, I entirely agree with you that when you sit in seats that, such as the one you're sitting in now, or the one I sat in as DPP, then you you know you have to sometimes um, move in ways that you wouldn't necessarily predict it be- before you got there, because your accountability is different. You're no longer accountable to yourself as an individual barrister. You have a public responsibility. But I, I just wanted to, to, to take you up on whole life tariffs. I mean, in the in the past, they have been uh, whole life sentences. In the past, they have been reserved for the very, very worst, multiple murderers, murders of police officers. Uh, I mean, cases like the Sarah Everard case. One of the cases that you've mentioned in the case that, that that has been influential, I think, in the development of this policy is the Zara Alina case. This was a terrible murder, random attack on a young Woman who was training to be a lawyer, terrible, terrible case. But but she, the court of appeal finally decided that she, uh, that he, the murderer, deserved a, a, a minimal ter, minimum term of thirty three years. Uh, of course, as the lady chief justice pointed out, his sentence wasn't thirty three years. His sentence was life. What the thirty three years meant was that he would have to serve at least thirty three years before he was eligible for parole. Um, and the reality is that, that the sentence is likely to be much, much harsher than, 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 than 33 years. But 33 years in itself is a very, very long sentence. And that's the sort of case which you're now going to bring into the whole life tariff system, which at the moment is dealt with by a sentence of no less than 33 years and perhaps much, much longer if the parole board decide he's not safe to be released after 33 years. I mean, isn't that an adequate societal well, response? To that crime. And I'm, I'm really not trying to minimise this crime at all, but I think that's an adequate response. And I think what you're doing is just, if you, if, 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 if you'll forgive me, chucking a bit of red meat
2: out here. Two, well, two things I'd say. So, um, first, it may, of course, be that he would be released after 33 years. So I take your point that the parole board would have to consider it, and very often they don't release at that point. But he could be point one, and I make that point because I, this is not intended to be a. It's a statement of the bleed and obvious, but for the victims who have let, been left behind, Farah, who I've met as her, her aunt and others, this, this, you know, this is a life sentence of anguish. And there is a powerful sense of somebody who has behaved in such an appallingly brutal way, the thought that he can en- enjoy his dotage at liberty when they will never be able to recover from the pain of having an entirely innocent, the bright point in their lives ripped away in such a callous fashion, I think is, is, uh, you know, is a significant point to weigh heavily in the balance. Point one. Point two, hang on, if I can just, just finish the point because it's important, is that I was very keen in this policy to ensure that the just, the judges did have a discretion, a discretion which they're very familiar with using, the Exceptional Circumstances Discretion, which incidentally I, I've used, or rather I've been in cases where, where it has been invoked in respect of possession of firearms, for example, and the courts are uh, able and well, well able, of course, to use that as appropriate. So. We think that that strikes the right balance. It does justice, or allows the court to do justice on the facts of the case. And if there are exceptional circumstances, no doubt the courts will proceed accordingly. But I, w- I, w- I would just say this: notwithstanding the extraordinary dignity of the family of Zara Alina, I think it is right that we ins- that we ensure that disposals are available, which I think to the overwhelming majority of the British people will feel uh, will feel just. So that's our position.
1: Can, can I ask you about the Victims and Prisoners Bill, which is also in the King's speech? You may, yeah, of course. Because uh, again, going back to the number 10 uh, briefing, it says the Victims and Prisoners Bill will give ministers the power to stop the parole of the worst offenders and prevent them getting married. Now, I've, I've been doing prison law for 40 years. I, I've written a te- textbook yeah. on prison law. I've done God knows how many parole board yes. hearings I've acted for people who've been convicted of very violent offences. Yes. Um, uh, I can tell you, and I'm sure you know it as well, the parole board does not release extremely violent, dangerous people. They are an expert body who have huge experience in assessing dangerousness. And so the uh, and so the question, first question is, what on earth, why on earth would a minister, advised by civil servants, be in a better position to judge whether it's safe to release a prisoner? And the second point is this. Uh, I also acted I uh, acted for Myra Hindley and, and also a man called Stafford uh, over challenging the involvement in ministers, politicians, in interfering with uh, the life sentence. Uh, as you know, it used to be the Secretary of State decided on the release of, of life sentence prisoners. And so from a constitutional point of view, as well as from a practical point of view, what, what is this power supposed to achieve?
2: Yeah, well, look, well the first thing I'm very glad you've Uh, rightly pointed out the expertise of the parole board. So my whole tone and posture respect to the parole board is to emphasize precisely that, that overwhelmingly they do an extremely good job, that they are highly professional, they take evidence, as you know, from a whole raft of professionals, from psychologists and so on, and they consider it extremely carefully. And by the way, in the overwhelming majority of cases, they make absolutely the right decision. So this is not intended to say they are incapable or unwilling to take the robust decisions for, to promote public confidence. Instead, this piece of legislation is designed to offer an additional check, i that's the expression I use rather than a veto necessarily, inappropriate cases to allow effectively the Pro Board to look again. So, uh, there are those who perhaps might have wanted to mischaracterize this as to all intents and purposes, the Secretary of State uh, making all these decisions uh, he, he, himself, effectively, it provides the power to to require a second look, so to invite, the, to invite the upper tribunal to have a look at it. Now, there are some cases, and incidentally, this does not apply to all cases by any means, but it's those most serious, which has the biggest impact for there to be a second. And I actually think that is in the interest of supporting the parole board. It's not meant to be antagonistic. But in those cases, just to allow a second check. And we've worked closely with the Judicial Office to see whether that should be the Court of Appeal Criminal Division or whether it should be up the upper tribunal. And the upper tribunal can hear uh, evidence in this way. So, look, I understand why some people um, might suggest that ministers are wanting to wade in like medieval monarchs. That's absolutely not what I'm proposing to do. I'm very conscious of the proper limits of ministerial executive authority. And this is about a second check.
0: Well that's 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 good to hear that it's not a a a, a, a blatant override yeah. that's that's good to hear. Can, we, can we can we move on um the conservative government is not uniquely guilty as i would say on 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 this aspect i mean labor governments and labor home sectors have done it too but there's been a ramping up of of rhetoric about lawyers and lefty lawyers and, and i would say uh in in some cases linking lawyers to the uh, you know the sins of their clients. I mean, political attacks on lawyers for doing their job. Now, you're Lord Chancellor, and one of your roles is to stand up uh, in Cabinet for rule of law. I mean, when you hear the Home Secretary talking about lefty lawyers, when you talk, hear other politicians railing against lefty lawyers who are bringing judicial reviews against the government, does this make you feel um, uncomfortable? And is this something that you raise in Cabinet? Uh, well, and was just following on from what Ken said, of course, you're aware that Lord
1: Faulkner, your predecessor, denounced you for denouncing lawyers for parading their political views in the work they do and there was slight irony
2: for I love, I love charlie deeply uh but he'll uh he'll never never resist the opportunity to have a pop no, i mean look i think um the, th- the thing that, that you're, you're right and um, ken respectfully with your uh opening remarks i mean I, I remember as a barrister uh pre pre-2010 feeling a little indignant when uh I think it was Jack Straw, whoever it was, was saying, you know, these lawyers, they come in and they resist these antisocial behaviour orders in communities blighted by antisocial behaviour, and then they they drive off in their BMWs and they don't have to live with it. Yeah, he did. I remember remember, that. I remember that speech. I I remember people were talking about, oh, you know, we're going to derail the gravy train of legal aid. And I literally, I was one of the barristers who got named and shamed in a list of people who'd sort of received however much it was from the legal aid and it's a slightly separate point but anyway I just, I just make that point that there hasn't always been um, swooning adulation of lawyers. Uh, 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 have, the, have you? Got, have you? My my question is: Have you gone yeah, over to the no, dog no, side? No, no, no. Of course not. Let me. So let me just set. Let me just set out uh, just some issues of principle, which I think bear emphasis. And um, you know it. Your listeners know it. But it. But it does bear emphasis that those of us who act as lawyers do so because we're recruited on the basis of our expertise rather than our beliefs. And of course, you're there to do your duty to act in the finest traditions. Of uh, the independent bar, indeed, as independent lawyers, so to do, and and I just pause to reflect. It was, um, you know, it was, a pr- it was a future president of the United States who acted on behalf of British soldiers who'd been accused of uh, effectively what you might think of nowadays as war crimes in the 18th century, and that's exactly uh, as it should be. I think the the only thing that I would say, in the interest of some uh, uh, context, I mean, I, so I will always make those points, and I think it's very very important that we continue to do so. There, there has been a bit of a trend, and I think earlier this year, there was a, a declaration of conscience rather grandly uh, uh, re- referred to by a group of lawyers, and by the way, not an undistinguished group, this included five silks, who said that notwithstanding that uh, the cause of these various people is entirely legal, I think it was to do with um, uh, various companies. I think they were fossil fuel companies. Yeah, or they were. They we 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 refuse to act, which of course drives the coach and horses on one view through the cab rank uh, rule. Well, on any and, view, on any yeah, view, yeah. And and I thought it I thought it was really disappointing because some some of the language was was a bit was a bit fruity to be. I, I, I think I wrote it down somewhere. Yeah, they were saying, you know, um, they said it referenced that civil law. They referenced things that civil law should prevent, but does not. In other words, they were yeah. taking a view that the law was wrong, and that therefore they weren't going to have any part of it. And that struck me as regrettable for those of us who want to stand up and say, "For goodness' sake, don't worry about people's politics; worry about their skills, because that's all that, that really matters." So you will always find from me somebody who wants to underscore and emphasise the fact that lawyers act freely and fairly, without you know, without fear or favour, to do the best on behalf the of their clients, whether they agree with them or not. But it doesn't necessarily help uh, that some will come out. And be very clear uh, that that they they take a view which um, either they either agree or disagree with their client. That seems to me to cross a line, which is which is broadly unhelpful.
1: Alex, I know you you haven't got a lot of time left, and there's a, a couple more topics we want to cover. We can't ahead, we, we can't ignore the subject of prisons. Your prison predecessor, Robert Buckland, came on our podcast, and he was strongly of the view that prisons should not be part of the MoJ brief. You, however, are stuck with it. It must take up a huge amount of your time. The IFG performance tracker published last week uh, said the familiar line. Uh, so the prison service is in crisis since mid-2021, it's been increasing at a rapid rate that is becoming increasingly unsustainable. I've got a personal interest in this. A good friend's son is one of this year's unlocked Graduates.
2: Oh, what a hero!
1: You spoke. You spoke to him and his colleagues at Leeds in, in the summer, uh, and uh, for what it's worth to you, you came across to them all extremely well. They thought you were brilliant. He is now working as a prison officer in a overcrowded London prison. The issues of safety and overcrowding and conditions are. Profound. I, you know, you, uh, you don't need me to, to, obviously, to remind you of that. Now, the proposals in the Queen's speech to do with um, the shorter sentences are great. We all agree on that. Um, but that's going to take time to work its way through. And there are, there's no sign at the moment of a, a, of a massive reduction. I mean, uh, prisoner safety is an issue. Prison officer safety is an issue. Uh, h- how is this going to be
0: solved any time soon? Before you answer, can I just add an equally personal note because part of your plans for prisons must include uh, a greatly increased work for the probation service. And one of my kids is a probation officer. Um, oh, really? And they are really um, under the yeah. cosh in terms of their working conditions and their caseloads and attacks on them in the press and so on and so forth. So this is a whole system problem, is not it?
2: Prisons, probation, and the relationship between the two. Gosh, these are, su- well, f- these are massive questions and they're, they're very fair questions. And they're... Um, there were two really at the beginning, which is one, what are you going to do to fix the prisons? But but also, should yep. they be in your yep. portfolio uh, at all? Um, and I know Ian Burnett takes the view when he made the point with this characteristic clarity that he thought that they shouldn't. I, I mean, I have to say, I'm I, I'm I'm a little bit undecided on this. I mean, they are in this portfolio and it does mean that when you sit around the cabinet table, you're not just there as, the, as it were, the conscience of the rule of law, incredibly important though that is, but there is the heft that comes from running a serious uh, government department with a, bi- a budget of around £11 billion, pounds and so on, and that does have a certain uh, significance. There, there is a concern I do have, however, which is that where you have one department, uh, you know, particularly the Home Office, that will be making certain suggestions about policy, which could have an impact on the prisons. But of course, the, the person who has to stand up and address the fact of prison capacity is in a separate department now. You know that th- that does potentially create a certain um, tensions. The wrong word, but there's you know that does create a certain difficulty. So that that's the first thing. As as to the wider point about what we're going to do about prisons, I think it's really worth just for a second, for to a twenty seconds, setting out a bit of the context. For those who say, and this builds upon the points you were making right at the beginning. Well, hang on a second. You know all these uh, long tough sentences. The chickens are coming home to roost. That is an attractive narrative, but actually the data suggests that the issue is not so much in the sentence population, it is in the remand, uh, yeah. remand population. And of that remand, it's overwhelmingly pre-trial detention. So on a statistic, which I think is extraordinary, the number of people on remand is a full 6,000 higher than it was pre-COVID, which is staggering. Uh, And and in the context of a total population of around 88,000, you can see that that has uh, the immediate impact. There's also incidentally more who have been recalled, but I'll just deal with the issue of of remand. So, And the reason why the remand population is higher is principally because there are more cases that have come into the system. So unlike in the magistrate's court, which as you know, deals with around 90% of cases, in the Crown Court, the caseload has gone from 40,000 to around sixty-five thousand, and I, by the way, I just paused to note, and this entirely sort of self-serving point, but I have to make it. In 2010, it was forty-eight thousand. So it's forty thousand, and then it's sort of sixty-five thousand now. So it does beg the question because you mentioned in the preamble, Ken. Well, look, you know, you were a minister, and uh, during COVID, we had a decision around the very table that I'm speaking to you now about what should we do about jury trials, because there is no doubt that jury trials and pandemics go together like you know a fish and the proverbial. Bicycle. That has been the reason, ultimately, why you've got this. Now we were right, in my view, not you to, were right. You were not right. to get rid of them, not to get rid of them. But there are there have been consequences. So we are trying to unwind that, and it will take time. I mean, you know, we've got more judges, more courtrooms, more sitting days. You know, we kept the Nightingale Courts going. We're putting up to 141 million pounds into legal aid. You will not ever hear this Lord Chancellor decry legal aid. Don't. That I will never do that. So we're putting a huge amount more money and more resources into it. And by the way, something that I'm, if you'll forgive me, very proud of we we reopen the spending review to put millions more into the court estate an incredibly important what about probation what do you what about well i'm just coming i'm just coming on to probation so the point you make, um, so just a, just a final point on on the prisons. Can I just uh, pay tribute to those unlocked uh, graduates? They do an incredibly important job, and I am so grateful. It, it is uh, massively stimulating, but it is difficult. So, but so I, I and we accepted the every jot and tittle, every last penny, the prison service pay review body. So we put more money into into that as well. No doubt, it's never enough, but we we did accept that uh, recommendation wholesale. Probation, look, probation. You know, there are real. I do have a concern about it because although we have recruited very significantly, so 1,500 in the first of the last three years, 1,500 in the second, and an additional 1,000 in the last year plus 500, I do absolutely accept that that the, the probation service is is improving. It's on a trajectory of improvement, but there are some inexperienced. There are quite a few inexperienced probation officers. I absolutely accept that. Head on. We are investing very significantly in it. We are trying to increase the amount of mentoring so that so that that improves. What I think we are on a trajectory, though, to do is to increase the expertise and experience of that cohort. We are going through a period at the moment where there is a higher proportion of less experienced officers, and I'm absolutely mindful of that. So that is a real priority for this department under my leadership. I mean, keeping people out of prison is going to is going to mean. Uh,
0: serious probation work. Alex, perhaps
1: finally, um, our last guest was Angus McCulloch, uh, King's Counsel. Obviously, you'll be uh, yes. you'll be aware of Angus, and you'll know what a, a superb advocate he is, and what a, an important person or role he played as a, a special advocate in closed material cases for the last 20 years and he resigned or rather well, he just said he didn't resign but he's not taking up any new instructions until there's a, a response yeah. from the government to the Oosley review which itself was delayed um, for two and a half years in commissioning it. There's a delay of a best part of a further year in publishing the Oosley report. Yeah. and Now there's still no response. And it's led to Angus who is the most experienced, uh, excellent special advocate to, to withdrawing from the scheme. Uh, and that is hugely damaging to the the, the reputation of the whole process. What, what what's what's your response to Angus?
2: Yeah, just say a few a few things. First of all, you're right. Angus is extremely distinguished, and so we've listened very carefully, or I've listened very carefully to what it is that he had to say. Second thing is the report came out in uh, November 22. That we will be responding in the early part of next year, as uh, Lord Bellamy has said in the House of Lords, and I'm happy uh, to um, repeat here. Um, so we we are considering the Uzi report carefully, and as I say, we'll be responding. the the other The other thing to say is that, you know, there were points raised which I think weren't directly within the Uzi report about rates of uh, remuneration. So we will also be looking at that. So I'm seized of the importance of it. We are moving rapidly to uh, finalise our response to it, and you'll be hearing more about this in the new year. I mean, not the least of
0: the important factors here is that much of what Angus complains about relates to undertakings which were given by ministers, certainly in the House of Lords, when this legislation was being passed. And some of those undertakings have not followed through. And I hope that they will be followed through
2: from now on. Yeah, well, onwards. I can say that actually later today, I'm speaking to my officials about good, this very good, issue. Good. And also bluntly, I mean, being as candid as I can, you know, I'm speaking with the Attorney General's office as well about which government department is going to really be driving forward on this because sometimes it, it slightly falls between two stores. On the okay. issue of remuneration, that's not directly one for us. Equally, there are matters which are plainly in my lane. So uh, that is, I've I received a letter from the AG about this precise issue. It's getting close attention at, at senior ministerial level. And as I say, we'll be, we'll be responding in the new year.
0: Well, Alex, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and we're, we're very grateful to you for giving us time out of your busy schedule. I think a final, final question from me before before we finish, if if the Conservative Party manifesto were to contain a, an undertaking to leave the European Convention oh, on I Human knew Rights. I knew this was coming, would I knew you, this was coming. Would you. Gosh, I haven't finished No, 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 I haven't finished yet. Would you
2: be prepared to sign up for that and would you campaign on it? Well, um, I'm afraid you're getting the stock response. I was in in Strasbourg uh, uh, recently speaking to the president of the Supreme Court and others, and indeed uh, other ambassadors. I think I'm just simply going to to say the point that I've I've made before is that uh, as a government, the British government is um, committed to membership of the European Convention on Human Rights, uh, and we are satisfied that our domestic agenda can be delivered in a way that is consistent with our international legal obligations.
0: Well, amen to that. Alex, thank you very, very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me.
2: Yes, thank you.
1: You've been listening to Double Jeopardy, the law and politics podcast with Ken Macdonald and with me, Timo, and we hope you've enjoyed that discussion with Alex Chalk. Uh, We recorded it before the news of Suella Braverman's criticism of the Metropolitan Police Commissioner for allowing the pro-Palestine march to proceed began to dominate the headlines. But we hope you enjoyed this episode in any event. Have a look at our back catalogue. We've got a wide range of guests, from Professor Kathleen Stock to former President of the Supreme Court, Brenda Hale, Dominic Grieve, former Lord Chancellor Robert Buckland, Lord Panic, and a whole host of other guests. So please check out the back catalogue. Give us a good review if you've enjoyed it, or a bad review if you haven't. We'll take everything that uh, we get. We'll be back with you in a couple of weeks and look forward to seeing you then. Our editor is Billy Lawrence and our social media advisor is Jess Jones.